powers to protect. Brought to you by KCL or the IBI and funded by Commission Amman with a television license fee. Check out ourstoprotect.ie for more information. This week on Ours to Protect, we're joined by environmental consultant Jack O'Sullivan. Jack, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you, Esna. I'm delighted to be on the programme. Tell me, what is an environmental consultant? Oh, wow. It can mean many things to many people. But basically, an environmental consultant is someone who has appropriate training. In my case, an ecologist with some chemistry as well. But people from various backgrounds, such as engineering and environmental science, chemistry, biology, botany, zoology, geology if they widen out the areas of their competence, can become environmental consultants. I got into this area very simply by the fact that I worked for a number of years as a fishery officer, and this was purely inshore fisheries, so I learned a lot about shellfish, about inshore marine life, and the committee for which I worked was also responsible for licensing discharges to the sea, So I learned a lot about local authorities, of controlling discharges, about chemical wastes, about landfills. And I was told then, well, look, you're not really a good person to become an academic. You have to be a world specialist in something for that. But you'd probably make a very good consultant. And that kind of widespread background, wide background in all the different sciences helps me greatly. And that's how I ended up freelancing as an environmental consultant. Talk to me then about the work of an environmental consultant. What's your day-to-day like? It varies enormously. An awful lot of us spend writing reports, I have to say that. Much less time is spent being out, as we say, in the field, visiting sites. But I am also attending meetings on the phone with clients. And a lot of my work is now done on the internet, researching, meeting with people using Zoom or Google Meets. And a lot of my work, and I'm a bit unusual here, a lot of my work is for small local groups of people who are opposing some kind of development which they don't want to see and which they believe, quite rightly, would be damaging to the environment. For example, a large pig farm, a landfill, an incinerator, a wind farm, and so on. I haven't worked very much for large development companies, But I have worked for governments. I worked in Lithuania. I worked in Russia. I worked for the European Commission. And one of the things which stood to me over many years was advice given to me by the head of a unit in which I worked in the 1970s. He said, your job is to make sure that the people working under you can do their work well. And most importantly, he said, if a client rings you up and asks you to think about a job, don't just say something like, well, we'll think about it or we might do it. Say, of course we'll do it. Put the phone down and then figure out how you're going to do it. Always be positive. And that's a good advice to anybody who wants to get into the consultancy business. Always be positive. It surely is. So listen, a long career there. Tell me, how do you think climate activism or the shift towards climate education and awareness has developed over the years? It's developed quite quickly in some countries. In Ireland, it's developed appallingly slowly. It's been a very mixed series of messages. The Citizens' Assembly produced a superb report on the way our climate is changing globally and the effects on Ireland and what we should be doing. That caught the government on the left foot, really, because they hadn't really thought about 
what we've got to do as a country to address the whole climate issue. Now we're getting there bit by bit. I'd say we're about somewhere around 20 years behind. And the difficulty is as follows. If we had started reducing our fossil fuel use in the 1990s and had electrified all our trains in the 1990s and got lorries off the road and moved most of our uh, freight by rail in the 1990s, even the early 2000s, and changed our agriculture away from the intensive farming, which we're doing now, and moved more towards organic farming, growing crops, then the transition to a, a good climate, or as you say, climate neutrality, low carbon footprint for the country, would be so much easier. Now, it's like falling off a cliff face. We have to reduce our fossil fuel use rapidly and enormously, and that's going to be difficult. So the long time scale taken to react is going to cause serious transition problems. So we're playing catch up to a large extent. We are. And that's so true. I was in Lithuania there now a week and a half ago, and I could see electric trains, electric buses, very good transportation services, very few heavy lorries on the road, a lot of heavy goods moved by rail, and like Ireland, wind farming. Solar energy is great for Ireland. For example, in 1975-76, when I worked in the National Science Council, uh, an organization since been abolished by the government, one of my colleagues was working on solar energy. He did a superb report which said solar energy in Ireland. We had more of it per head of population than France. Now, when I look at solar energy today in Ireland, it's very, very good. We have a solar panels on the roof of our office and it generates electricity nearly every day. Even the sort of dullish days we're getting something. And if it's a bright day, whether it's bright cloudy or bright sunny or blue sky, we get more than enough electricity to supply our house. So in the winter, we do need to, to buy electricity. But in the summer, even spring and parts of the autumn, we're exporting electricity. Now, Germany started this in 2020. We're only beginning to move into the area now in 2022 and 2023. So we are a long, long way behind. And it's sad that because with a bit of good leadership, we could have been way ahead. Another thing, too, about wind farming. One of the colleagues we had in the National Science Council in the 1970s said Ireland has got tremendous wind potential. His report was shelved. Denmark did a similar study to Ireland. And they found that wind was very good, like we have also very good wind power. The Danes carried on. Ireland abandoned the research. And the Danes started manufacturing wind turbines. And they are now the world's largest manufacturer of wind turbines. And with something like 10,000 people employed in the industry. Plus the fact that the Danish government has actively helped small local communities, individual farmers, groups of farmers and villagers and villages to erect wind turbines. So that 50% of all the wind energy in Denmark is produced by local people for local people. That's a very different picture to the way the government has gone in Ireland.